Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan from Mount Gambier, Australia, and this is my quest to teach the whole New Testament as deeply and helpfully as I can. So grab your Bible and a beverage of choice, and let's take a few intentional minutes together in the deep end. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. Our passage for this episode is Luke chapter 17, verses 22 to 37. Bear in mind, this is an extension of the passage we covered in the last episode. This whole discussion is initiated by the Pharisees, but now Jesus continues the idea with his disciples as we read further. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. We are now being brought a little more into the long game of the work of Christ, with the understanding that there will be a day where Jesus fully reigns on the earth. But there are things which must occur first for God's agenda to be complete. And the disciples needed to get into a frame of mind which leaned into this being a longer journey than they might be thinking. We saw in the last episode that there is a now element to the reign of Christ. The kingdom is among you now. With the arrival of Christ and with his announcement that the kingdom was at hand and all are called to repent and believe, we know that this kingdom was inaugurated. The Christian's life now is one of complete abdication to the desires and systems of the world in favor of complete allegiance to King Jesus based on what we know now of the person and work of Christ, with the understanding that more is still to come. That idea of more to come is spelled out in spectacular fashion in this passage, and it won't be the last time we get to explore this idea. The timing is key here, and Jesus gives us some clues about how we are to view things. It begins first not with triumph, but with suffering. Jesus explains to his disciples that this generation will reject him first. This is yet another clear pointer to the cross that at this time is looming very close. In fact, I only have a dozen or so episodes to go before we get to the Passion Week. This suffering is linked in some ways here with the disciples' journey afterward as well. Jesus says that there will be a day where they and we will long to see this day. So much so that we may even fall for others saying that he's here or there already, when that is simply not the case. 
In the generation Jesus was speaking to, the Jews had already been displaying this longing to the point that we had a number of preparatory processes taking place among the people. The Pharisaic outlook in some ways competing with the Sadducean one. The aggression of the Zealots clashing with the withdrawal of the Essenes. All of these were having a hard time gelling with Jesus because he didn't conform to their conclusion biases. But there would be people who would come out of the woodwork and by pandering to one of these views, they would seek to be elevated and viewed in deceptively messianic fashion. Jesus tells the disciples clearly to not follow these. In doing this, he makes his messianic credentials clear for the sake of those following him. He will reign in full, and he will finish what he started. That end point is described in this passage as the day of the Son of Man. It will occur at a point after his suffering in a manner that will call for long-term diligence for those who follow him. The points of reference he offers here are the days of Noah and the days of Lot, two very poignant stories of utter destruction and judgment in the Old Testament. Let's look at the circumstances around Noah for a moment. Genesis chapter 6 verses 11 to 13 tells us this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. This is just 10 generations after Adam, with Noah being a son in the line of Adam and Eve's third son, Seth, born after the violence of Cain and Abel. It is stated in Genesis 4 that through this family line, the people began to call on the name of the Lord again, which explains how Noah's faith was in play when the world had seemingly become too far gone. And the ark with its collection of animals is viewed by some as a kind of mini Eden, which keeps God's redeemed creation safe while he judges everything and everyone around them. But while the violence was building, life was seemingly going along business as usual, with people blissfully unaware of their own demise. They were enjoying life, making long-term plans like marriage and family right up to the very end, even with this big Eden-like structure being built in their sight. But when God got to the point where he felt the need to destroy what he created, it was final for all who were not in the ark. But this all happened at a time where God, in his perfect estimation, declared humanity to be completely given over to sin. Injustice and violence abounding in a way where it easily coexisted alongside everyday life. Lot is again a picture of one righteous man located among a sea of violence in a city location. In that poetic Genesis setting, the ideas of cities were ones of fear and excess, where the evil of the human heart is seen to be amplified. They are also presented in heavy contrast with the garden setting where humanity began in the first place. We often associate these two cities with apparently one major sin, and the letter of Jude certainly points to their immorality as a key thing leading to their demise. But their sin was far wider than this. When God speaks against Judah in Isaiah chapter 1 and calls them another Sodom, it wasn't their morality or sexuality in question but their violence and absence of justice and their unwillingness to use their wealth for good. And the widows and the poor and the orphans were the victims, which God was, of course, not okay with. In the days of Lot, there again comes a point where the cry of the city's victims are so frequent that God has to act. In Genesis 18.20, we read these words of God. 
The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous. This outcry echoes the blood of Abel calling from the ground in Genesis chapter 4. It's a reference to violence and bloodshed coming up before God in a manner that calls him to act quickly. It's essentially the victim calling for justice. Again, life in these cities is going as normal. Buying, selling, marrying, planning for long lives even in the midst of violence and injustice. But when God's messengers arrive and lead Lot and his family out of the city, the judgment that follows is again one of utter finality. And the return and the reign of Jesus will occur in a similar way. When, like the days of Lot and Noah, the outcry of the world and its violence is no longer bearable in the presence of God. When the world hits that place where God decides everyone but the faithful are completely given over. This hasn't happened yet, of course, and this is simply on account of grace. Peter reminds us that God is still giving space for humanity to repent. He is by no means slow in keeping his word. He's being absolutely thorough so that nobody who is willing to repent is missed. And our call in the lead up to that day, and indeed on it, is to keep our gaze ever towards its coming. Using Lot's infamous wife as an example, Jesus says, don't look back in any way in the way you live your life. Carry yourself in a mindset of active anticipation of what is yet to come, considering all that is behind of no worth compared to the coming glory of Christ on that day. We are then introduced to a somewhat mysterious idea at the end of this passage. We're in the midst of two very ordinary things occurring. A sudden division will take place. On that day, the day of the Son of Man, two are together, one is taken, and the other left. For many, this speaks of an event known to some as a rapture, a time where Christians are suddenly taken away, while those left behind are going to endure a period of intensely hard times before the reign and judgment of Christ. I don't sit with that line of thought, as I believe Jesus has an idea that that day will be a once-off and definitive thing. In this thinking, the ones taken in this teaching are actually the ones being taken off to judgment, while the ones left are in fact the ones who are in grace and therefore being spared. The ones taken will therefore have an ominous appointment with the Lord. In any case, rapture or not, we are told in clear terms from Jesus that first he has to suffer. Then, in a time that is not unlike the days of Lot or Noah, he will return again. When humanity is at its lowest, when they are completely given over and there is no longer any space to repent, he will come. And there will be a great division, the elect to glory, the rebellious and the sinner to judgment. And as you see the figurative vultures circling, when you see the world losing its way more and more, remain faithful at all costs, for the day of the Lord will come, and it will come soon. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about this podcast and other ministries I'm involved in, go to my new website, www.ministryinthedeepend.com.au. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and even YouTube. So please like, follow, subscribe, connect, and comment wherever you can. I look forward to catching up next time. See you then.